am very pleased to present Lucas Donovan, Assistant Professor at the University of Washington and Core Investigator for the VA HSRD Center for Innovation for Value Driven Care. Thank you so much for being First here. First thing that I wanted to ask you was how you got interested in sleep research. It's actually sort of a funny story. You know, I, after my you know, first year of medical school, you know, you're expected to do research and occasionally you're reported by a stipend. And you know, I knew I wanted to do research with a you know, child psychologist I had met in undergrad. I uh, went to undergrad and med school at the same place, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And the professor I wanted to do research with, she had two projects. She had one that was in diabetes, supported by NIDDK. And she also had uh, a project related to sleep for the summer. So it was a pretty easy choice for me to make and um, chose to do the sleep project, which was you know, related to teaching some overweight adolescents about who had insufficient sleep duration around uh, sleep hygiene and seeing if that you know, had other health effects. And I began that project and I've been stuck in sleep ever since. During that year, I met Kingman Stroll. And you know, after reading more about his work and talking about his work, I um, got inspired and decided to pursue uh, research with him for my med school thesis around respiratory control, looking at variation in rat strains, and helped uh, his work along around the genetic underpinnings of respiratory control. And at that point, I was hooked on scientific exploration, hypothesis testing, field of sleep medicine, got to do some clinic with Dr. Stroll. And uh, then pursued more um, research related to sleep when I was in residency with Sanjay Patel and Susie Burdish at Beth Israel, uh, working with them, you know, armed with uh, the experiences of residency and fellowship where you just see how messy care can be in the real world, I made a transition to clinical and health services research and developed an interest in evaluating factors uh, related to care delivery and how we can achieve meaningful patient-centered outcomes in the real world. What kind of projects are you currently working on? My current research focuses on measuring and improving access to care services in ways that maximize quality, efficiency, and patient experience. Currently supported by a VA HSRND Career Development Award under my primary mentor, who's David O. And I'm evaluating patient experiences with different models of sleep care delivery and taking taking advantage of some qualitative methods that started to learn during the under the support of the Aspire program. And in related work, I'm also funded by the Office of Veterans Access to Care to evaluate the uh, impact of implementing nurse-led decision-making for sleep referrals um, and assessing its impact on timeliness, quality of care, satisfaction, and costs. What kind of quality and efficiency metrics are you using to evaluate this project? Yeah, so so we're looking at a few different metrics. We're looking at timeliness to care. Um, you know, the time from a primary care provider places a referral to when the the care gets delivered. We're looking at patient satisfaction through you know a number of surveys. We're using some homegrown surveys, just assessing general you know agreement with you know how quickly care is delivered and how much they feel that they know the next steps in their care. And then we're also you know pursuing some quality, uh, some more in depth, semi structured qualitative interviews with patients who've had experiences with care. What kind of novel models of care are you exploring in addition to the more typical traditional models? You know, in particular with the work I'm doing with the Office of Veterans Access to Care, you know, the, our traditional model has, has really been reliant on specialists doing the decision-making and deciding who needs a home sleep apnea test, who uh, who needs an in-lab study, who goes to provider clinic, who goes straight to PAP based on their history. And through work I've been doing with the Office of Veterans Access to Care, looking at a new referral coordination model, we're incorporating nurses into that role, and we're evaluating the, the impact of nurse-led decision-making on uh, some of these important outcomes of interest.
Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like a lot more people could potentially get the services if we were to implement some of these strategies. Yeah, that's definitely the that's definitely the the hope that we can prove the uh, the efficiency of our our limited specialty care workforce. Great. And how do you think that the Spire Fellowship influenced your career in sleep research? I I think it's 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 tough to overstate the impact that the Aspire Fellowship had. I was uh, awarded the Aspire Fellowship when I was when I was in my pulmonary critical care fellowship, and you know was really supported by you know a lot of my mentors, you know Vishesh Kapoor, uh, David O, Brian Palin to apply for this. And you know there's there's a number of benefits from the fellowship. First, there's the money. You know the fellowship you know provides you with a some research funds and you know supported some of the quality quantitative and qualitative work that I was doing with one of my other mentors Eric Hawkins around um benzodiazepine use among patients with COPD and PTSD who simultaneously have disproportionate burden of sleep and anxiety issues as well as risks related to benzos and um the support from the Aspire Fellowship gave me the resources to do some qualitative interviews and start to hone that skill which is really a cornerstone of comprehensive health services and implementation work and the funding from the Aspire Fellowship also helped me attend conferences, such as Academy Health, the annual research meeting, which is, you know, sort of the National Health Services Conference and, you know, allowed me to, to network with other individuals in that field and gain a, a wider perspective on, you know, what's the latest and greatest in health services. I, I would say in addition to the money you get as part of the, the program, the grant money, um, the non-financial impact is much greater. You know, first, you're able to network with leaders in the field. Uh, you know, such as you know Patrick Strollo, Atul Mahotra, and, and you get to know them. You get feedback on your work, and you gain another opportunity to share your work and hone your message, presenting in front of Susan Redline your your work. And these you know public speaking opportunities are they're gold. You really need to you know, hone that skill as part of your development as a clinician scientist, and it gives you that opportunity. Also, you can't ignore the fact that Spire Fellowship looks good on grant applications. It sort of says something to grant reviewers that you're you know, you're making strides within this field and it helped me get an F32, you know, an independent fellowship training award that protected my time for, for, you know, a few years. And you also helped me competitively apply for the NIH loan repayment program and also me apply for my VA career development award. And I specifically remember on the, the summary statement on the, you know, sorry, the, the pink sheets I got back from my VA career development award, one of the reviewers Specifically mentioned, by our program is one of the one of the strengths in my when they talk about the the candidate and their their likelihood to succeed. So I think it's really been you know a huge benefit from in multiple areas. And I think you know most importantly, just that stamp of you know we believe in you gave me you know a lot of confidence to keep going and and pursue a career in research. So I really can't overstate the impact that had. Can you speak a little bit about how you gained experience with and knowledge about the complex methods you're now using? So, you know, I think it, it definitely, learning things like qualitative research, it takes a, a village, <laughs> so to speak. You know, you need a number of, of ingredients. You know, the most important of those ingredients is your, your mentors and your mentorship team. And so I've had a number of mentors in my my center, including you know David O, uh, Eric Hawkins, and um, George Sarah. Who George Sarah in particular has really been uh, mentoring me around qualitative techniques and how to elicit rich and trustworthy data through semi-structured interviews, and you know how to evaluate it in a in a rigorous way. 
And that's, you know, the mentorship is really the, the main piece, but also, you know, the qualitative work, you know, oftentimes it's, it, it can be resource intensive. And so doing that as a fellow, I needed funding and the Aspire Fellowship helped that buy some of the equipment and with participant payments and that sort of thing. Great. And where do you see your research heading? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, we've got a major problem in sleep care. We've, we have an incredibly common conditions for which the management is often centered in the hands of a small number of specialists. And, you know, that math is just never going to work out. And so we need to, you know, em- embrace, you know, step care models of care delivery that, you know, deliver the right kind of care to the right kind of patient, maximizing, you know, non-sleep specialists and developing streamlined models to integrate what we know from well-conducted efficacy trials into the real world. We've known for two decades that that nurses can provide care for patients with OSA from some of the work that has been done um, by our colleagues down in Australia and Spain. We know that, that primary care providers can perform a lot of what specialists can do. And so what we need to do is we need to integrate this knowledge into the real world. And that takes step that's hard and that takes you know, rigorous implementation and health services research. And so I really see my career going towards that trajectory to integrate these models of care into strategies that can overcome barriers of geography and uh, personnel and cost to deliver patient-centered and you know, high-value care. And where do you see clinical sleep medicine in the next 10 to 20 years? My, um, I see my research is sort of in line with where clinical sleep medicine needs to go. You know, we need to, we need to embrace these different models of care. You know, we need to in- embrace telehealth strategies to overcome issues of geography. And we need to integrate, you know, non-specialists into sleep care to overcome our personnel deficit. And we need to integrate automated technologies to provide care that's tailored to individual individual patients does so in a way that, that does so quickly and you know so that we can provide cares for patients the care they need, provide access without bankrupting our healthcare system. You know, a lot of the work that I'm I'm planning on doing is to identify the the right patients for these appropriate care delivery pathways and rigorously studying the care that's delivered in the real world, revising as we go using a, a learning health system model. You know, I see different pathways emerging for individuals with different presentations, comorbidities, and eventually incorporating the information we get about phenotyping into decision-making, figuring out what the process map looks like for a given patient who needs sleep care and find a way to deliver that care as efficiently as possible. That's really the needs of the healthcare system around sleep, and that's going to be the task of health services researchers for the next few decades at least. So it sounds like you see sleep apnea becoming more diffusely recognized mm-hmm. and and treated for with sleep medicine practitioners being like the main heads of the project in terms of guiding care and trying to innovate around different ways of providing services. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the the role of the sleep specialist going forward, <laughs> it's going to have to look a lot different from the traditional specialist model where every patient with OSA sees a sleep specialist and then goes on to other care that requires the the intimate engagement of, you know, a scarce specialist. And so we're going to need to move around that and involve um, specialists in training non-sleep specialists, you know, primary care providers, nurses, developing uh, decision support tools that are tailored for your individual system that allow these providers to, you know, hopefully deliver care that's safe and effective without your 
perpetual involvement and constant involvement every step, and then helping non-specialists to recognize those who really need a higher level of care and really need a sleep specialist's input. The understanding where the patient with OSA, who has relatively straightforward OSA, can move on to autotype training CPAP and be treated well, they might do well, but the, you know, the patient with OSA who also has sleepwalking needs to see the specialist. And so those, they, they seem relatively straightforward to us as, as specialists, but they're not oftentimes that transparent to you know, non-specialists as you sort of deputize the care. And so trying to deliver safe and effective care in a, in a more simplified and value-based model is really the goal here. I think there's lessons to be learned from other conditions like COPD where only a fraction of patients see a pulmonologist. You know, only about 10% of patients with COPD see a, a pulmonologist. The rest are taken care of in uh, in primary care. And oftentimes that can lead to the delivery of low-value services and, you know, potentially contraindicated services as my mentor published on substantially. But, you know, there's uh, there's a thing to be said for providing the the right amount of care with the right the right personnel. Not every patient needs to see a specialist. But we need to make sure that the care that's provided by the, you know, those who are not necessarily specialists is as safe as possible. Learning lessons from where care delivered in other conditions, like for COPD, has fallen short in that regard is really going to be, it's really going to be helpful as we take care of our, uh, you know, large population of, of patients with sleep disorder breathing. What would you say to those entering the field who are considering going into sleep or sleep medicine research? You know, I, I think first first thing I'd say is do it. It's a great field. We have a huge challenge ahead of us managing very prevalent conditions. And so we need as many clinicians and clinician researchers as we can. And it, tackling this problem is going to take a lot of individuals thinking collaboratively and, and putting our heads together to figure out models of care that can be adapted to different situations. And so first off, I would say definitely please come in. We absolutely need your help. <laughs> You know, the other things I would say is keep an open mind about what projects you are interested in and um, see what resources you have around you. It's you may come into, you know, a research fellowship with a specific interest in mind or a specific project in mind. And if you have your heart too set on that, you may ignore the potentially more feasible and better opportunities that are available to you from mentors who are in your vicinity. If, if you're able to be flexible in the, the questions you're interested in looking at, and if you're able to be flexible in how you approach those questions, then it, your mentors can more easily help you accomplish your research goals, your more proximal research goals. And in doing so, you can develop sort of more generalizable skills around research that you can then integrate towards eventually answering the, some of the, those deep burning questions in your soul. I would definitely encourage people to be, be flexible. The final thing I would encourage people to remember is it can, you know, the, the field of you know, re- research in, in particular can be difficult business. <laughs> you know, you, you have to face a lot of rejection of, you know, papers, grants, and to not necessarily take it personally. Everybody receives this kind of kind of rejection. You know, don't don't internalize it. The successful researchers are those who are able to take a licking and keep on ticking, so to speak. And so I think those are the, the three main things I would say to someone who's interested in sleep research in, in general. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to learn more about your research and where you think the field is going. Yeah, thank you so much.